Good afternoon, Grace Fellowship Church. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here. And I have had many bad days in my life. But today I would like to tell you about what I remember as the worst day of my life. It was when we were in Uganda to adopt our twin sons. We had already been denied guardianship of them once by the judge in Uganda, but we had the hope of a second hearing with him. We were just waiting it out. And the day came when I had to leave Uganda and return to the United States because of my my work, my ministry with Disciple Makers. Disciple Makers had graciously given me a two-month sabbatical for the adoption But Aaron would stay in Uganda to finish out the process. And at the time, we didn't know how long it would be. It ended up being six more weeks that she had to be there without me to finish it out. But this day came when I had to say goodbye, get in a taxi, drive four hours to the airport, fly to Washington, D.C., get in my car, drive home alone to central Pennsylvania. And the day I left, we were so overwhelmed with emotion that I don't remember another day like that. Aaron and I had put off our goodbyes until the last minute. We had treated it just like any other day, living as a family, because we didn't know how to cope with how sad we were. But then the taxi arrived, and I had to go, and we both lost it. I had to say goodbye to Aaron... And I was pretty sure that I would see her again, but I had no idea when that would be. And I had to say goodbye to Benaya and Ethan, although at the time we called them Isangoma and Kato, their tribal names, which are now their middle names. I said goodbye to them, having no assurance whatsoever that I would ever see them again, even though I loved them as a father. This is the closest I've ever come to losing everything. And my wish at the time was simply to see them all again. What do you wish for when you hit the bottom? When you feel like you've lost all the things you want? This afternoon, we'll see what Job wished for. Job was a man who suffered more than almost any other person in human history. He went from being higher than most people ever reach in their lives, and he dropped lower than most people ever fall in their lives. And this afternoon, we're in chapter 29 of the book of Job as we study through the book. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 279. And here in this chapter, Job remembers exactly how good his life used to be. It was before he lost his servants, before he lost his camels, before he lost his donkeys, before he lost his cattle, before he lost his children, before he lost his health. This chapter begins a new section in Job. There's actually a typo in your handout in the corner if you see the gray box, the map of Job. Chapter 29 is the beginning of Act 4 in this play of Job where Elihu interacts with Job. It starts with 29 and goes through to chapter 37. But so far in this book, we saw in the narrative prologue in chapters 1 and 2, uh, 
what happened to Job? We saw his story. We saw this wager between God and Satan that Job was caught up in the middle of. In chapter 3, we saw Job's lament and his, his big question, why is this happening to me? In chapters 4 through 26, Job interacted with his three friends and they debated the answer to that question. Why is this happening to you, Job? And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar argued that it's happening to you because of something you did. And Job says, no, it's happening to me because God is out to get me. And that debate raged for 23 chapters. And then in chapters 27 and 28, we hit Act 3, which is the theological and the literary center of the book, where Job states very clearly that I'll never discover why this is happening to me. As I look for wisdom, I can search high, I can search low, but wisdom, finding the meaning behind these things, is not to be found on this planet. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord and to turn away from evil. And now we hit Act 4, and Act 4 kicks off with Job's final major speech in the book. At the end of the book, he'll say just a few lines after God speaks. But this is his final speech, his final major speech. And then after this speech, there will be four answering speeches from a new friend, Elihu. But here we are in chapters 29 to 31. Job's closing speech covers three chapters. And in chapter 29, he talks about how good life used to be. Then we'll see in chapter 30, he'll talk about how terrible my life is now. And in chapter 31, he'll talk about why he doesn't deserve what has happened to him. This week, we'll cover just the first chapter. Chapter 29, how good his life used to be. And we'll ask this question. When you have nothing... What do you wish for? We'll see that Job wishes for three things. Friendship with God, righteousness and justice toward the lowly, and the security of godly wisdom. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we dig in far further into his word. Lord, we ask that you would please bless us now. Give us more of your spirit. Uh, please bless this time, Lord, apart from the the supernatural working of your spirit, we will never learn how to interpret our lives the way you intend us to interpret them. And so we ask now that you would help us and grant us the wisdom from above. And Lord, please help us to wish for in our lives what you would have us wish for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, in Job 29... Job wishes for friendship with God. I'll read verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. This chapter begins in verse 1 
with this narrative statement and Job again took up his discourse. That's the kind of clue that the poet gives us to say, here's a new speech. Here's the beginning of a section. And this is the last one for Job, 29 through 31. It just goes on for the three chapters. And this speech of Job begins with two interesting words. Oh, that... And this is an interesting phrase. This phrase occurs more frequently in the book of Job than in any other book of the Bible. Oh, that. And it's where Job expresses the desires of his heart. He's been doing it over and over again through the book. In verse 2, he says, what, what I wish for, oh, that I were, as in the months of old, I wished for the days when God watched over me. Because we've seen in the chapters leading up to this that Job has felt time and again like God is not watching over him anymore. And so he wishes for those days when God watched over him. The key sentiment here in this stanza comes in verse 4 when he says, As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent. Verse 5, he goes on to explain that. He says, When the Almighty was yet with me, This was the primary promise of God's covenant with Israel when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be with you. Job doesn't have that covenant. That hasn't been made yet with Israel when Job lived, as far as we can tell. But he still wishes for the presence of the Almighty with him. And he wants his children to be around him. He wants the community of his family back in place. In verse 6, he says, When my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. This is kind of like saying, I wish for those days when everything I did was like butter. It was smooth. It was abundant. It was rich. Now notice here, when Job is expressing his concluding statement and the deepest longings of his heart, He doesn't primarily ask for the return of his riches or his health. He does wish for the presence of his children. They are the most important things of all that he lost. But his primary request is not for the return of all his stuff. His primary request is for friendship with God. Because it's painful for him to be in conflict with God. It's hard to feel like he is God's enemy and that God has made him the target of his fury. The main point is this. If Job could have but one thing, it would be peace with God. He wants to get right on that vertical relationship with God more than anything else. And here we see, well demonstrated, Job's fear of God. That which he has been commended for from the very first chapter, that which he has been defending with all of his friends, is that he fears God, he wants God. He's terrified of God, but he wants to be with him forever. How does this apply for us? When you are squished like a tube of toothpaste... What flavor comes out of you? When you don't have any time to think or to plan your response and your heart of hearts cries out in pain, what do you wish for? Do you wish for relief 
or stability or comfort or abundance or space or isolation? We'll see as we go through this chapter, Job actually wants many of those things. They're not all bad things to want. They'll come out as we go, but first and foremost, he wants peace with God. He wants the friendship of God to be restored to him. Is friendship with God even a category for you? I'll be honest with you, when I was in Uganda and when I had to say goodbye to my family, not knowing if I would see these boys ever again, I always knew that God was in control and that was one of my greatest hopes, that this was not outside of God's will for our lives. But honestly, I never thought of him as my friend. As someone who is there with me, walking with me through it, carrying my burdens and sharing my pain. I just didn't have that category. This is Job's wish, however. It's his first wish. And Job wished better than he knew. Because eventually, the true friend of God would come. And that friend was not Job. It was Jesus. It was the one who shared the glory of God from eternity past. The one who shared unity with the Father. As John 1.18 puts it, Jesus was the only God who was at the Father's side who has made him known. Job's first wish is for friendship with God. Second, Job's second wish is righteousness and justice toward the lowly. In verses 7 through 17, Job goes on in describing his former life, but he describes it as one of unparalleled respect. Listen to this, verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. I'll stop there for now. In verse 7, Job says that he went out to the gate of the city. And in the ancient world, the gate of the city was the seat of government, particularly for city-states dotted across the countryside. The, the gate was the seat of government. And when Job went out there to take his place, to prepare his seat, verses 8 through 10, he describes the young, the aged, the princes, and the nobles, all these people who were there to make decisions for the good of the city, for the good of the land. There was a lot of hubbub. There was consideration of issues. There was debate. There was murmur. There was discussion. Until Job walked in. And the moment he walked in, verse 8, the young men withdrew. They knew it wasn't their place to debate him. The aged rose and stood out of respect for their superior. The princes stopped talking in order to hear Job's decisions and opinions. And the nobles are hushed. Verse 11, every ear... Every eye blesses and approves of his leadership. This is like saying, I went to visit the White House. And while I was there, work halted, and they began rolling cameras 
in order to hear my views on the latest point of public policy. Why did Job demand such respect? How did he acquire such incredible respect from the highest members of society? Because, verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. You see, in verse 12, Job delivered the poor and the fatherless. Verse 13, the one who was about to perish blessed Job, presumably because Job had rescued him from perishing. The widow's heart would sing for joy because he had provided for her deepest needs. In verse 14, like clothing, he wore righteousness and justice. He's saying that righteousness and justice was not just what he did, it was who he was. He was the man of righteousness and justice. And I think the most beautiful statements come in verse 15. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. You see, Job didn't merely help people. He actually entered into their infirmities and gave them life in the midst of it. He became the eyes for those who could not see. He became the feet for those who could not walk. In 16, he was a father to the fatherless. He took great pains to help those who couldn't return the favor to him. And in verse 17, he was not only nice to the right people, to the, the lowly, but he was also ferocious whenever necessary. He was more ferocious than a wolf ripping bites of flesh off of its prey to take advantage of people. Job earned everyone's respect for his good character and his good deeds. He demanded their honor without ever being demanding about it. He was simply a righteous and a just savior for all humankind. The main point of this stanza is this. Job's second wish is not for all the good things he deserves, but it's for the good things he used to be able to do for others. Part of Job's lament in his deep suffering is that he can't help people anymore the way he used to. He's not much good without property, without an estate, without influence. Job has always been one to turn away from evil and he wants to keep doing it. How does this apply to us? Friends, let us not ever confuse humility with bashfulness or timidity. Biblical humility has very little to do with looking down on yourself and hiding in corners and trying to go unnoticed and shunning power or respect or advancement. 
Job longs for the respect that he had earned from being a savior to mankind. Humility has everything to do with who you live for. Whether you seek the good of yourself or whether you seek the good of others. That's where biblical humility is, is if you seek the good of others. But you can't do much good for other people if you have no influence yourself. You can't resist unfair oppression in your workplace if you have not yet advanced in authority and respect to do something for those who need your help. You can't share what you have with people who need it if you have nothing in your possession to share. That's why in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, when talking to thieves, he says, stop stealing. Instead, work hard so that you may have stuff to share. Stop taking. Instead, give. You can't be eyes to the blind and feet to the lame if you're not able to see or walk. Humility means that whenever things go wrong, you take the blame And whenever things go right, you shift the credit to other people because you're not concerned with yourself, but with others. And friends, Job wished better than he knew. Job, in his humility, wished for righteousness and justice toward the lowly, not just for himself, but for others. And eventually, the true Savior would come, the one who would ultimately bring righteousness and justice for the lowly. And that's why Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, quotes Psalm 45 and applies it to Jesus when it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is the one who made widows sing. Remember when he brought that widow's son back to life in Luke. Jesus was the one who was eyes to the blind. He was feet to the lame. He took on the curse of others. When he healed the leper who was an outcast, Jesus became an outcast and he wasn't able to go into the city anymore while the the leper was able to go in and go into the temple and worship God. Jesus was the one who brought righteousness and justice toward the lowly. And so we see with Job... Job wants a strong vertical relationship with God. He wants friendship with God to be restored. And he also wants strong horizontal relationships with people. He wants to be able to do good for others. But we all know that such leadership comes and goes, doesn't it? Many reputable leaders in the Bible and in history have begun with promises of the common good, but such promises often have the longevity of a a, a yard full of dandelion seeds. If wishes were horses, then beggars would ride, as they say. This is Job's wish. But what would Job do about this fact that even if he could give righteousness and justice, even as he once did, the time ended and he can't do it anymore. That's why he moves on to his third wish in the final part of the chapter where he wishes for the security of godly wisdom. Let's read verses 18 through 20. 
Job says, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Job wishes not only for good things, not only for righteousness and justice to be done for the lowly, but he wishes for his days to be able to do such good things, to multiply like the sand. Verse 18. He wants his roots to spread out to the waters. Verse 19. So that a dry season won't prevent him from persevering and doing good. Because everybody knows that when a godly ruler who serves the best interests of the people rules for a long time, everyone is better off for it. And so Job wishes that he could have had that kind of security, that kind of longevity and length to his rule in this region. And he goes on, verses 21 to 25. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. Here's what would give him that security, that longevity. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. This security and longevity that he wishes for his days to multiply like the sand, that's a good thing. Because in verses 21, 22, 23, people are hanging on his every word. His lips drip with such sound and righteous counsel that it refreshes people like the spring rain. In verse 24, this wise counsel inspires people when they lack confidence. In verse 25, we find out that Job was actually a king. This counsel, this wisdom that he spoke constantly made him a king, not just in name, but in truth. It made him one who comforts mourners, unlike his despicable friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The main point here in this stanza is that Job's third wish when he's lost everything and he could wish for anything his third wish is for lasting influence to comfort and counsel his people part of his lament in this book is that he's no longer in a position to be able to comfort others and this is the guy who needs comfort more than anybody else does. And he's sad about the fact that he can't comfort others. He's worried about the fact that his wisdom won't land to encourage those who have no confidence. How does this apply for us? Job's godly wisdom could have led for security. That was his wish. Stability, longevity. Friends, godly wisdom is a precious thing. It begins with the fear of the Lord. 
and turning away from evil. And it is invaluable. The last chapter, he told us that its worth is more valuable than gold and jewels and rubies and all kinds of riches. Godly wisdom is worth sacrificing for. It comforts those who struggle. It inspires those without hope. It provides security to people whose lives are falling apart. It gives life to those who see nothing but pain and death. Wisdom is both influential and beneficial for all involved. It provides security and longevity to both leaders and their communities. Children, for the children who are here, when your parents speak God's words to you, they're wanting to give you God's wisdom. They're not trying to hurt you when your parents tell you God's words. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to be mean. They're not stealing your fun. They want to give you life. They want it to go well for you. They love you. Children, it's best for you to listen and pay attention. For all of us, is your growth in wisdom this high on your priority list that it would be among your top three wishes if you lost everything? Are you becoming the kind of person that other people would seek out for counsel? Do you look to grow your influence by having substantial direction to offer people? How is your time in God's Word? How about reading other books? How about learning from other wise people? When I was in college, I asked my pastor and my campus ministry worker and select professors for suggested reading lists to help me build wisdom. And I'm still working through those reading lists as I try to grow up. Job wished for the security of godly wisdom. And Job wished better than he knew. Because eventually, the eternal wise king would come and he would sit on the throne forever. Long after Job, Solomon would predict the better king's arrival in Psalm 72 where Solomon wrote give the king your justice O God and give your righteousness to the royal son for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And those people who were present on the first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem getting ready to die, they wished for better than they knew when they said in Mark chapter 11 Hosanna which is uh, an old word that just means save us save us blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the coming king of our father David Hosanna in the highest save us in the best possible way Jesus was the king he is the king who reigns eternally And so in closing, as we look at Job's speech, at Job's wishes, 
as he wishes for what he used to have. Consider how remarkable these three wishes are that Job has. If he could make three wishes, this is what it would be. And our best guess is that the book of Job was actually the very first book of the Bible to be written. The Hebrew uh, vocabulary and syntax that's used in this book is, is pretty archaic. And the book takes place outside of Israel. And so as far as we can tell, both Job and the poet writing about Job knew absolutely nothing about Moses, about God's redemption, about God's covenant with Israel. They knew nothing about the judges or King David or Solomon. They knew nothing of the exile of the Jews and nothing of God's promises to rescue his people once and for all. Of course, they knew nothing about Jesus or the message of his death and resurrection or the proclamation of his forgiveness to all nations. Job knew nothing about the Bible or about God's revealed will for mankind. And yet, his three greatest wishes take on the shape of God's entire plan for human history. Wish number one. That I would have a right relationship with God and so be able to love Him with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. Wish number two, to rescue the helpless and so be able to love my neighbor as myself. Wish number three, to have lasting influence and so to be able to make disciples of all nations for the rest of time. Job wishes for nothing less than the perfect fulfillment of the greatest commandment to love God, the second greatest commandment to love his neighbor, and the great commission to have good for others and influence on them for the good of for their good and the glory of God. Job thinks the fulfillment of these things was found in his former life, and he's lost it. What he didn't realize was that it will truly be found only in Jesus and in his eternal kingship. And the promise for us today is for you who believe in Jesus, you have been united to Christ and these same three things are worked out through you. As God makes you like Jesus and you love God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself and you have lasting influence on others, for the glory of Christ. Are these your wishes? Because these are God's wishes for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we can do nothing apart from your grace and your mercy. And it is amazing that you inspired Job and the, the poet of this book to to give us this hint in, in Job's time of, of greatest need and deepest struggle, that he wished for the three very things that you would work through all history, through all the scripture, and you would bring to completion in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. May these be our wishes for our lives as well. Father, help us to wish for your friendship for righteousness and justice toward the lowly and for the security and the longevity of godly wisdom. We ask these things not for our good, but for your glory in all the earth. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.